Hello and welcome to Not Your Mother's Podcast. I am Mandy Moore and wait, yes, I am technically the show manager and producer, but because I am particularly interested in today's topic and being a mother coder in general, I am crashing the party. So with me today, I am pleased to welcome Coraline Ada Emke. Thank you, Mandy. As the producer of the show, though, I would have expected you to remember that we're actually called Creators in Code. And that's something I've been corrected on a lot of times. And I guess you just don't listen to that part of the audio when you're doing the editing. Nope. Also happy to be joined by Rain today. I am very excited to welcome our guest this week, Tina Lee. Tina is the founder and CEO of Mother Coders, a nonprofit social enterprise dedicated to unwrapping women with kids to careers in technology so they can thrive in a digital economy. Prior to founding Mother Coders, Tina worked in government and the nonprofit and private sectors. She holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in political, legal, and economic analysis from Mills College and an MBA from their Lori I. Loki Graduate School of Business. In 2010, Tina received her MA in Education from Stanford University's Graduate School of Education, where her studies in their Learning, Design, and Technology program focused on how technology can be used to foster civic engagement. Tina speaks and writes regularly on topics related to the digital economy, including diversity and inclusion, civic innovation, workforce development, and the changing needs of women and families in a globalized and tech-driven world. And I'm happy that I could read that entire intro out because it's very clear that you have spent a lot of time and effort understanding these issues, learning about these issues throughout your uh, your college and university career and, and onwards. So can you talk about how these issues became so important for you and why you decided to, to sort of make this, I guess, your life's work, if that's an accurate characterization? It is an accurate characterization. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm delighted to be with all of you. You know, it's really funny. I don't know if you ever saw that video of Steve Jobs giving a commencement speech at Stanford saying, you know, don't worry about, you know, where you're going. Just go with your gut and your life's work won't make sense and you won't be able to connect the dots until you look back. Right. And that's kind of the path that I've taken is I've just kind of tried something. And if it doesn't work, then I try something else. And I've just moved closer and closer to my life's work, which I will right now say is really creating space for us to intentionally create an economy that's more fair and inclusive. We're going through this huge transition, um, worldwide transition. And I don't want us to replicate all the inequities that we have in this economy and bring it into the next economy. I want to spend some time making sure that the people that are feeling marginalized now have a foothold in the new economy so that we can change the trajectories of their families. So I know that sounds like huge and, oh my God, you're doing this by yourself. What? <laughs> But really, I have been working towards this uh, my whole life, and I was born into an immigrant family. I was raised by a grandmother who worked in a sweatshop. So I am very familiar with what happens when people are marginalized. And having been the first to go to college, I always thought like, oh, I'm going to go make you know my mark in business. And that just became clear to me it wasn't going to happen there. And so I tried, you know, all these different spaces. I tried working in government. I've been in philanthropy and now I started a nonprofit. But I think the overarching thread um, that ran through all of those things was that I wanted to create a more fair world. Was there a particular moment or an event that put you on this path or was it a more gradual development? I think there were definite forks in the road, right? But I think for the purposes of this conversation for Mother Coders, it was definitely this moment in the middle of the night. It was uh, shortly after I had my second daughter. So I had a two-year-old and an infant. I wanted to move back into a role that was more technical. I had been working um, in a government role, and it, I was just getting further and further away from the tech so I was like, okay, I'm going to spend this time, you know, during my maternity leave, because it makes perfect sense to uh, relearn all the stuff that I used to know how to do. So I was uh, learning to code again. I was actually just reviewing CSS, right? Not super hard and had a complete meltdown because I was exhausted. I was in between breastfeeding sessions in the middle of the night and I was lonely. 
And even though I had gone to ed school and knew that for me and a lot of other people, that online learning isn't the best modality for me, it was kind of all I had left. So I had a fairly significant breakdown and insight about how hard it is for mothers, for parents, any caregiver really to be able to do all these things and keep up with the skills that we need to be able to take care of our families. I was in a similar situation back in 2009 when I had my daughter. I was put on mandatory bed rest, so I was unemployed when I had her. Once that ran out, I went on to waitressing, and I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I went to college. I had a degree in professional writing, a minor in communications, arts, and sciences, but for me, I was a single mom, and I had very, very little help my mom was around back then and my sister was I think a junior or senior in high school at the time and I was just looking for any kind of opportunity to be able to be successful without having to like leave my house because daycare and other things like that are so expensive you know babysitters these days charge an arm and a leg just to go out for an evening so i started looking online and saw the the opportunities in the technical space were just tremendous and luckily i fell into what i'm doing now which wasn't technically coding but now that I've met all these amazing people from just producing podcasts and doing a little bit of virtual assistance, I see the value that you can do, you can do it from home, you know, while the kids are taking a nap or when they go to bed at night, spend a couple of extra hours learning new things. And it's just such a great opportunity in any situation to get involved in coding. Absolutely. And we have some single moms um, that have come through our classes and it's the community that gets them through. Like you said, meeting the amazing people that are in the space. I think that's key. And just knowing that, oh, okay, there's a world of opportunity for me out there. I just need to do these things makes it less scary and more accessible. And that's what we try to do is we try to bring in um, mothers who know they want to go back into the workforce or switch into a more technical role, but don't know where to start, right? They, I've had people run up to me, Python or Ruby or, you know, some other language. I'm like, I don't know. What do you want to do? And they'll say, I don't know. My friend told me, and this is so cool. Been there. <laughs> yeah. Right? And it's like a whole world between, you know, making that decision and figuring out if that's the right thing for you and, you know, if you even like the jobs that are open to you once you learn something. So we try to kind of close that gap for moms who are standing on the sidelines and want to get in. Tina, I'm curious. I'm a mom. And um, when my daughter was very young, that was at the start of my career. I already had some sort of baseline knowledge. But I had a lot of trouble with work-life balance. And I tilted way too far in favor of work and missed a lot of really important milestones in my daughter's life. How do you address work-life balance as you're working with moms who are just getting started in this field? Man, it's tough, right? That question really goes back to how our society is organized around this idealized vision of a nuclear family where there's a male breadwinner, usually a male breadwinner, right? Who goes out and does all the things 24 seven, all in work first. And he's able to do that because the assumption is that there's a homemaker, usually a female who takes care of everything on the home front so that he can do that. Well, that's never quite been the case for families in the US. And it's especially not the case today when almost half of families with children under 18 have working parents, both of them working full time just to stay afloat. So it doesn't reflect reality. And we're organized around it, right? So what I mean by that is schools let out in the middle of the afternoon, because they assume that there's a female caregiver picking them up. Summers, you know, are off <laughs> two weeks for, you know, Christmas and that's just schools, right? And then there's the tax code and then there's workplace policies that kind of reinforce all this. So all this to say the structures that we have in society around work and just how we're organized, it's not suited for working parents. 
And as a woman, not only do you have to kind of, you know, overcome all the barriers around sexism, you have to, on top of that, really try to navigate this complex set of social structures that are stacked against you. It's kind of depressing um, <laughs> if you think about it. But what I found is, you know, this conversation around work-life balance isn't necessarily moving us forward because it's hard to make this problem about moms not being able to balance our priorities and manage our time. That's not the case, right? The case is that we're expected to do all these things and put in 45 hours a week. So our bosses think that we are just as competent and committed to our career. So I try myself not to play that game of work-life balance. It's just one I'm never going to win. I have a husband who works full-time. We don't have our family around, and we have two young daughters. So for me and my husband, it's just us not so much as balancing, us coming together and prioritizing and working as a team to make sure that um, we each get what we need to cover our bases at work and also take care of our family. So I don't have anything new or smart to say about that other than we are all messed up in terms of how we're organized and we have to rethink this whole thing. So it's a society issue. Yes! Your, your kid gets sick. You have to stay home. A lot of people these days don't work eight to four, nine to fives. And it's always expected that you have to be there at a certain time to take care of the children. And when you're taking care of the children, then they need fed. They need fed around five or six o'clock at night. And then they need their baths and then they have to do their homework. And all that, you're trying to juggle a full-time job. It gets to be bananas. And it's frustrating. At the same time, I don't know how to fix it because I want to do things. I want to be a coder and I want to learn how to program. But at the end of the day, I'm exhausted. So like, what can society do? I mean, short of, you know, allowing your children to come to work or like young children before they're school aged or, or something else to try and help the situation. I mean, that's a, you know, huge problem. We're basically talking about changing culture. And that takes a lot of time. And I heard this great saying the other day, it's culture is like water in that it flows from the top down, right? So I think people in power need to have that realization that, hey, this isn't working for us. We're leaving a lot of money on the table. And by the way, it's really inhumane, right? I don't even know which argument resonates more at this point. Um, because neither seems to be working <laughs> that well. So ultimately, I think we have to change the culture around gender roles and specifically what our expectations are around caregiving. But on a micro level, I think, you know, workplaces that are leading some of this change have implemented more parent friendly uh, workplace policies, such as, you know, paid parental leave. And I was just at a talk yesterday where they were saying that Slack has a saying that's written on the wall. That's how important they think it is. It's plastered across a very, very visible wall that says, work hard, go home. So for, I think, innovative companies who really do realize that we're humans and we have lives outside of work and we do better when we actually unplug and do other things are kind of leading the charge. And most of the time, um, the people that are leading it tend to be parents who get it. So I think with millennials uh, moving into the workforce based on kind of what sociologists have found about their preferences, they don't want to be all in at work. The men tend to want to be as involved in caregiving as the women or more so than their fathers had been. So, I mean, the research says there's some hope, but ultimately, you know, this is a cultural problem and it's just going to take a really long time to work itself out. And my whole goal of doing Mother Coders is because the industry right now is so in dire need of talent and they're going to have to enlist women because, you know, we're getting more degrees and getting more educated and we can actually do the job, right? 
that women with these technical skills will have a little bit more leverage. And over time, they'll move into positions of power where they can help change it. And that's just kind of the best I can come up with at this point. I just saw this great video by Neve Shulman. He was the host, or maybe still is, I don't really watch MTV much anymore, of uh, Catfish. And him and his wife had a baby. And he made this great video about ending gender stereotypes for parents and I totally recommend that everybody watch it because not only is it funny it it hits home hardcore. Yeah, it's so bizarre that we've constructed this whole myth around like how women are best suited for that, right? Because they found that in societies where men are more involved with caregiving, they actually have lower levels of violence overall. So biology is tied up in caregiving. And when men do it, everyone actually benefits. But yet we have um, a lot of myths here in America that kind of promote the opposite, that men are incapable and they can't even, you know, put on a diaper. And we reward dads for being able to take their kids for a walk without dying, you know. <laughs> I have a single dad friend who he said um, several times that the bar is set so low for dads because you know you hear dads talk about like oh i'm babysitting the kids this weekend it's like no you're being a father and my friend just finds that just by showing up he gets lauded because that expectation for dads is so low yep and it's you know this is not just coming from men right and this is a societal thing men and women both hold this up together not all men and not all women but you know in general majoritively so it sounds like there are a number of interrelated problems or challenges here. There's the economic empowerment of women, you know, giving them more access to a better income, more access to credit, things like that. There's the increased well-being of everyone, you know, starting with women, I think, because if women have increased well-being, then their children have increased well-being since, again, they're the primary caregivers, et cetera. There's also this social empowerment of women and challenging these social structures, how do we tackle all of these problems at the same time? Well, we are tackling it, just not in the same setting, right? Or, I mean, everyone's working on a different piece, I want to say. There are people who are trying to change the narrative in the media. There are, you know, women who are, and men who are doing it on the business front and, you know, government. And it's just, it's everything, right? It's in the air. Culture's in the air. You don't even know that something's at play until someone calls it out. And, you know, for what I'm trying to do with tech, tech is basically the new economy, right? Like you can't get to this new place without talking about tech because tech just underlies everything we do now. And it's just a matter of time before it's a literacy that everyone needs to have, knowing how to code or just understanding how technology works, right? And I, for one, hope that people who are leading change on any front recognizes that and we're all kind of chipping away at this elephant in our own way and that ultimately because tech is the future of work that we we are all being intentional about how we want to create this new economy so that we don't bring along all the stuff we don't want in this one maybe we could talk for a bit about the part of the elephant that uh, you are currently chipping away at what shall we name the part <laughs> Let's talk specifically about mother coders. I really know which part of the elephant specifically do you envision <laughs> my work. <laughs> I, I was I was just trying to roll with your metaphor. I didn't have one in mind specifically. Well, so mother coders is based in San Francisco, right? Yeah. What is it that you do there? So I live here. So you know, just a good as any place to start, right? I am born and raised in San Francisco, so I. I'm just immersed in this and I've seen it grow in prominence locally. And I've also seen it now, um, how it's transformed industries and places and the backlash against that. Right. So, um, you could say I'm kind of at ground zero for this stuff. And we started here because I thought, well, the issues here are so amplified, right? It's everything because it's such a small space because everyone comes here. Capital is concentrated here. All the issues that you, you might feel in places that aren't as tech centric here is like, you know, 10x, right? So I was seeing all these groups and organizations that were cropping up to address 
the pipeline, right? Let's teach girls, let's teach um, youth, let's teach kids, let's get college students involved, let's get the unemployed and, you know, just everybody except moms, right? And they're even women's groups, but they kind of stop once the women become moms. And that's because the childcare piece is very challenging. The exhaustion piece is very real. The not having time, right? Um, Melinda Gates calls this time poverty. Women have time poverty once they become mothers. There was this great um, post on Medium that shows based on the census survey on how Americans spend their time, the difference between parents and non-parents and men and women. And because caregiving is a very emotionally and time intensive and resource intensive enterprise, you know, something's got to give. So a lot of times mothers, the ones who work full time or even the ones that don't will only have a certain amount of time that they can devote, uninterrupted time to devote to learning something. And that tends to be in the evening after the kids go to bed or on Saturdays where they might have some coverage from a partner or family members. So that's why we design Mother Coders as it is. It's a Saturday part-time program with on-site childcare for those who need it. And then we also started experimenting with a daytime class for moms whose kids are in school and they're trying to reenter and they have some flexibility during the day. So that's what we do in San Francisco. We run a part-time tech training program for mothers who want to get into tech but don't yet know how their experience might connect or they're trying to get kind of a refresh right? And what we do is we do three parts. We do a coding part, we do a kind of industry knowledge part. And then lastly, we do a community building part. So I had gone to ed school and I'm a big believer in the fact that learning is social and contextual and people have evolved to learn because they needed to. And I'm a big Maslow's hierarchy of needs person. So People learn to do things because they want to meet their needs, right? So I, I try to design our program to help moms learn, but in a way that's social, in a way that fits into their own life goals and fits into the context of where they live. So we run this program. It's nine weeks. Eight weeks of it is in class. One day of it is a field trip to a tech company. So they just see what, how it works and talk to a tech team. And then the rest of their time, they're learning how to do front-end development, um, HTML, CSS, um, some JavaScript. And that really isn't to teach them how to code and then be job ready. It's really to kind of demystify it, to see if they even like it, right, and understand it. And then we bring in women from the field to teach um, specific things that we think are the most topical and important to understand, right? Um, we bring in a data scientist to talk about that. We bring in a information security person to talk about that. And then we let them go at it with each other, right? Because the data scientist wants all the things and the uh, information sec security expert says, eh, I don't know why if I want to even handle all the things. And then we bring in um, women to talk about marketing automation, product design. We bring in founders to share their experience. And through that exercise, not only are the women getting the latest and greatest from practitioners in the field, they're also growing their social capital, right? They're growing their network capital. They're making connections with people who actually work in roles that they might want to pursue. And that opens up a world of possibility because in the media, you might only know about, um, you know, you're either a programmer or you're a designer or, or web designer or whatever. And now you're like, oh, there's actually a person who does product management or product management. And that's the difference between these two or user experience design has all these other roles embedded in it, like researcher and UI. So it kind of opens the mom's eyes about what the possibilities are. And lastly, you know, we spend time, um, letting them um, connect with each other and um, grow relationships with each other. Because I'm sure the moms here will tell you um, being a mother can be very isolating because you don't have time to socialize or make new friends. So these women end up going to conferences together. They end up taking other more advanced classes together once they leave. And they're, you know, just become friends who hang out and, you know, um, help out each other with their code and share job tips or whatever. You talked about the training that the women receive being in front-end development. Mm -hmm. um, why did you pick front-end development? Do you think it's because the on-ramp is shorter? And how do you think that plays into the stereotype of women being better suited to front-end work than back-end work? 
Yeah, that is real, right? That um, stereotype. So I made that decision because I found it's the most accessible way to get someone to start, right? Everyone's seeing a website. Everyone can click on, you know, view source code and see code. Everyone can envision themselves building something that they can see, right? So I started learning Ruby and it took me a while. It was like so conceptual and I was like, and there was no front end to go with it. I'm like, what is happening here? Right. And from working with marginalized communities, from being in ed school and knowing about how people learn, right? I picked front end web development as the most accessible. People already have a mental model for what that is and what happens. And it was just one of those things where I'm like, what's the shortest distance from A to B or even like nothing to A? And that's why I picked that as opposed to starting with something that was, you know, more on the back end and less common that people have seen something like that, right? Like way back in the stack, people probably will get more confused and will probably take them more time to develop a mental model for what that means. But you talked about bringing in people who do infosec and the people who do data science and things like that. Have you tracked to see how people who've gone through your program, like if they end up staying with front end or if they can inspire to do some of the, the other aspects of development? Absolutely. Right. It's, it's like the gateway drug. <laughs> Once they figure out like, Oh, I can build this. So it's a confidence building exercise. Right. And they're like, Oh, JavaScript, my head just exploded. But yeah, okay. I like picked up 10% and it does pique their interest. Right. So we do have a group of moms right now that are learning Python with each other. Um, one's actually using it on her job now. She landed a data analyst role after graduating from our program and they saw her aptitude and now they're helping her learn Python. There's another woman who, um, didn't know anything about Python, right? And got, uh, looped into an open source project and they were very, very willing to train and now she's learning Python. So she made that leap. And then we have another one who's learning on her own. So that's, there's the data science Python crowd. One went through a coding bootcamp, so she's full stack now, um, working as a developer at an ed tech company. Another went through, she really fell in love. She's a, a graphic designer marketing kind of person and fell in love with coding and then decided to go through a, she went through CodePath and became a mobile designer. So now she's a visual designer on a product team of a health tech company. And then we have several that kind of took a break and came back. And so they kind of refreshed their skill set and dove right back into, you know, uh, there's a backend Ruby person. And then there are some other folks who jumped back into more like technical account management, I guess I should call that. So yes, they do get inspired to learn more. And it's just about getting them to a place where they have the confidence and the support to kind of slog through the beginning part where, you know, there's always a learning curve, right? Um, the trough of despair I talk about. It's, it's one of those things where, yes, there's, you know, this gendered perspective out there that women do front end. And that's unfortunate because it's not a function of whether or not these women can do it, right? That's like a market or a cultural response to women entering the field and wanting to create an hierarchy so that the people who are in power hold on to that. Yeah, there was a recent article in The Guardian about how women entering development and specifically entering front-end development jobs is having the effect of causing non-women to devalue front-end work. And I think that there's definitely a lot of elitism around front-end versus back-end or full-stack versus front-end or what have you. I can say it like I've been doing software development professionally for over 20 years and front end work intimidates the hell out of me. It is not easy. And I, I hate to see it devalued the way it is in our industry. Well, privilege will try to hold on to privilege <laughs> and, you know, they'll find a way to create barriers to entry. Right. And you see this in other industries, too, where, you know, the teaching profession, for example, right, for the longest time. Um, women were doing it. And then they came in with the administrative class, which was mostly men. And suddenly now teachers are devalued and the administrators are held to a higher level of prestige. So it happens in every industry. It's just all rooted in power and, you know, tied up with gender. 
uh, and race, uh, and class and ableism and all these other things. So yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, it's a moving target. And then you look at the history of how, you know, women were actually the pioneers of back end, right? And you just think this whole thing is just a farce. Yeah, definitely. I'm also curious, you talked about like why and how you got started in San Francisco. San Francisco, like I travel there from time to time and I have a lot of friends who work there at startups or at larger companies. And it's definitely a microcosm of tech, but there are cultural values that are present in Silicon Valley and in particular in the startup world. Do you worry that those don't necessarily translate to other places in the country that are not so venture capital focused and they have a different kind of elitism or sexism in place than what we see in Silicon Valley? Oh, absolutely. I'm all about context. And, you know, it's just like how gardens look different as you move around the country, right? You can grow things here, but not there. And even if you're growing, you know, squash here, it's going to look a little different in Florida there. So same thing with tech. And you're right. There are these, you know, kind of cultural norms here that don't translate well. And I'm really delighted actually to see kind of this diversification of tech, seeing how there are these nascent tech ecosystems are growing, are actively intentionally being grown by communities like in, was it Kentucky's got something going on, Tennessee, right? Austin, Texas, Arizona, like all these other places, North Carolina, Pittsburgh is just doing an amazing job of growing theirs. So I'm very optimistic about other places coming up so that we are not as much the center of the universe and defining the standards and the cultural norms for how tech is supposed to be. But I mean, for the most part, though, until we kind of change the dynamics at work, I think white men from a certain class will continue to dominate even in these other places. So we're talking about the importance of context, and I agree with you. It does seem to me that there are some generalities that you can make. So we're talking about how women are discriminated against in the workplace, specifically in high-status job markets, uh, and sort of pushed towards more low-status jobs. That happens, as far as I can tell, basically everywhere, you know, every country, uh, every industry. And so it seems like it's such a systemic issue that we need a systemic fix that would apply not just in Silicon Valley, not just in Kentucky, but something that would work everywhere. Is it yeah, something I mean, we can tackle, you know, piece by piece or do we need a more systemic plan? Media changes narratives, right? Um, so I think media has a pretty big role to play if we are to change culture. So one big thing that's tied to what I was saying earlier about how we're organized all wrong is that we hold on to this idea of the ideal worker, right? All in work all the time. Work takes precedence over everything else. They'll take, always take the phone call, always make the business trip. And that all in all the time mindset automatically excludes a lot of people if you can't hold up that standard, right? And because for better or worse, right? I mean, we're just at a place where women are still doing most of the caregiving, not just with children, but with elderly, you know, their parents. Women can't meet that ideal a lot of times once they become moms or caregivers. Like if you look at the uh, gender pay gap between women without children, women with children, you'll see a big gap. And the pay gap between women without kids and men is not as big. So that's definitely one of those things where as long as we hold on to this idea of the ideal worker, this is going to continue to persist, right? And what's related to that is the motherhood penalty, right? That once a woman becomes a mom, she's automatically perceived, perceived as being less competent and less committed to her career. And women overcompensate for that by never talking about the fact that they have kids are completely in the closet. You know, they no pictures of their kids on their work desk, right? Never say I have to leave because I have to go to a ballet recital or whatever. And that's because of the motherhood penalty. And they've done lots of research with this where you have, you know, women with the same pedigree, same credentials, same work experience, same everything, except one resume will say PTA president. And that resume will get less callbacks and be offered less money every time. So it's really sad, but that's culture talking. And I think things like um, what Salesforce is doing, um, they're going through, they're actually auditing all their pay scales and their uh, job titles to make sure that there's parity between men and women. Like that's a huge leap forward, right? If every company 
were to do that, I think we would make a big difference in correcting some of that uh, wage gap. But outside of that, I mean, unless companies are become more accepting of people having flexible schedules and people are more forthcoming, leadership is more forthcoming about, hey, I'm a parent too. And yeah, I get it. And like, you should leave if you want to or need to or whatever. And you're an adult and you can manage your time and just get what you need done, done, then whatever, right? So we're not there yet. The example that you just gave in Salesforce is an example of where often change has to come from the top. Always. You know, that, that, <laughs> wouldn't, that wouldn't happen if there wasn't a CEO who believed that it was a good idea to do that. Uh, and so, a, male, a white male CEO, mind yeah. you, right? Like that's a huge signal, huge signal. He knows the power that he has and he is wielding it exactly right. In that context, uh, you've chosen with mother coders to focus on empowering women at the, you know, the ground level, getting in there and, and working with women to make them more viable in the industry. Those seem in conflict to me. How do you maybe square those or explain to me how it isn't really a conflict and I'm seeing it wrong? I mean, we're just fighting the same war on different fronts. Mm-hmm. And the more women you have at the leadership table, right? The more women you have with skills that are highly, highly desirable and marketable and people are competing over having you on their team, the more leverage women will have and the more leverage leadership will have say, hey, we have to do these things because look at what we need. Look at our talent gap, right? Look at what we need to retain women, to recruit women. So it's they all work in concert together. So that's what I mean by same war, different fronts, right? Yeah, I guess if the question is how do we get more women CEOs, part of the answer has to be, well, have more high-valued women employees. Yeah, and we have to be open to seeing more women CEOs because, you know, going back to something that we talked about earlier, it's if women are expected to be the caregiver, just socially, right, to see a woman CEO, you're like, wait, who's taking care of your kids? So, I mean, that's like a huge quandary, a huge dilemma for women, right? Like, if you lead, you also have to seem nurturing, you have to be nice, right? But yet leaders are required to make hard choices. So then you start to doubt whether a woman is capable of doing that. Whereas a man just does it and you never ask, you know, the term working dad is laughable. Have you ever heard anyone say, oh, he's a working dad? No one says that because the presumption is that he works, right? And it's not the same for women. So it's just, you know, these expectations that we have. And it's hard because... I think women hold them too. And it's just kind of one of those things where we don't have enough female CEOs because we are not creating an environment where women can rise up to become CEO. They're not even getting funding when they're starting companies, right? I think women get like 4% of venture capital. So Tina, um, we've talked broadly about mother coders and the mission that you have. And we've also talked about the fact that we need to have a different set of values instilled in the culture. And I'm sure that these issues resonate really strongly with our listeners. But I also imagine a lot of our listeners asking, well, you know, what can I do like tactically to make these sort of cultural changes happen? There are lots of things you could do, but just to kind of put into context again, because I love context. Mother coders for me really is a tactic for what I'm trying to do. So what I'm trying to do is create a fairer world. Right. And the strategy that I'm taking is I'm going to focus on women, specifically mothers, because the, I, I know it's like a weird way to put what mothers bring to the world, but their social ROI, right? <laughs> their social rate of return. When you invest a dollar in uh, women, you actually get more than a dollar back in benefits. So I focus there and mother coders is a tactic for that, right? So in thinking about the impact that I want to have with mother coders, we are currently working on a licensing model where any community that wants to bring us there can um, do that by organizing their own people, their own community to um, come together and create a space to run a mother, mother coders program. So one way to help us with that is to start thinking about whether or not you want to have one and reach out. Um, we are currently fundraising um, to make this licensing model a reality. We want to raise $1.25 million over the next three years, 500000 this year, 500000 next year, and then 250 the year after that. And our goal really is to 
create a model where we have this incoming revenue stream so we're less dependent on uh, fundraising over time. And the reason why um, we are taking that strategy is because it's been really hard to raise money. And us being a nonprofit, we're going after philanthropic money. And the state of our country being where it is right now, a lot of money is going towards shoring up the safety net. So targeted at people, you know, living in poverty, targeted at, you know, communities that are really suffering and, you know, uh, dealing with uh, chronic unemployment and violence and all those things. And that's where a lot of the money is going towards. Um, there's also a lot of money going towards, you know, electoral politics. So that doesn't leave a lot of space for um, middle income people. And that's a large swath. So um, with moms, you know, with families, because childcare is so expensive, and housing costs are also increasing, families end up not having a lot of disposable income. So they might not be living in poverty, but they don't have, you know, the ten, fifteen thousand dollars that might be required to go to a full on boot camp, nor do they have the time to, you know, quit their jobs, right? And, and find childcare to uh, cover uh, themselves while they're in these programs. So mother coders really is trying to make a case for these moms who are so important to our economy, not only because they help hold up the economy, but they can actually help fill these jobs that companies need to keep innovating. We are asking philanthropists to uh, invest in middle-income families, middle-income moms. And that's been a hard case to make in this climate. So that's why we're really focused on creating a model where we're generating revenue. Now, our moms don't go for free. Most of our moms pay. It costs us about right now $7,000 for each mom to go through the program. And right now the moms either pay $2,500 if they don't need on-site tracker or $3,000 if they do, which is only, you know, half of what the actual cost is. But as we grow, we're going to have, you know, economies of scale. Um, and hopefully, you know, mother coders will become the self-sustaining thing over time um, because we're like the weight watchers of um, coding schools, right? Where um, each community that wants it comes together and designs a program teaching the technical skills that fit the needs of their local employers. And they're doing it in a way that meets the needs of the uh, population of moms and families they have locally. Different states have different childcare laws. And so that's another thing, right? So we're just trying to design a model that um, is enough structure for people to get started, but has enough flexibility where people can customize it to meet their needs. And to get there, we have to raise all this money to do it. So number one is money. Number two is if, you know, people um, are involved in um, discussions at their workplace where they do have some power to shape workplace policy to make things easier for moms and parents in general, because um, whatever happens for moms tends to benefit everyone else, you know, please weigh in and help, you know, push the needle on that. And lastly, um, it all goes back to, you know, implicit biases that people have too. So, you know, learning about maybe what your implicit biases are and then how that might play into your interactions at work, how that may play into recruiting practices and hiring decisions, all of that stuff, promotions, right? Um, I think that would go a long way too in demystifying it. And from just a geeky technical code perspective, a lot of moms find it very hard to make evening meetups because that's where the high traffic intense parenting happens. Kids have to get bathed. They have to do their homework. They have to go to bed. And moms cannot regularly make meetups and not be at home for that. So to make events more accessible would mean maybe having on-site childcare. It would mean hosting it maybe on a Saturday with on-site childcare, creating spaces where moms are welcomed. And just in general, just being mindful that, you know, there are parents and uh, other types of people with caregiving responsibilities who right now are standing on the sidelines and want to participate but can't.
Yeah, I helped organize a hackathon, a women's hackathon for civic engagement, uh, or rather for nonprofit engagement, um, a couple of years back. And it was like one of our goals was to have on-site childcare for that exact reason. We wanted to make sure that we were open and accessible to as many people as possible. And um, that was kind of hard given our budget, but we ended up finding a company that specifically was interested in sponsoring the childcare portion of our budget. So we're very fortunate in that. And I'm also happy to say that like I'm hearing about a lot more conferences and mainly there's sort of larger conferences that are starting to offer childcare. And I think that it would be great if we see that trend continuing so that we can involve more people from the community with different needs and different expectations and different responsibilities and get them folded into the community. Absolutely. And, you know, the numbers, right, are going to push people to do this, I hope. So over the next 10 years, it's expected that 64 million millennials will become parents. Right now, 25% of them are parents. And if companies want to hold on to the people that they've worked so hard to recruit and train and, and retain, right, they're going to have to do these things. And if they don't, um, I think women will get pushed out. I'm going to take a moment to give a shout out to one of our patrons, um, Nick Kantar in Kantar on Twitter, um, recently joined us as a patron. And if you are interested in helping to support the show financially, um, we hope you are. We hope you'll visit patreon.com slash greater than code. Donating at any level at all will get you access to our patron only Slack community where you can make suggestions about guests to come up on the show or um, ask questions of prior guests and just in general take part in a community of listeners who believe in the same sort of values that you believe in. So we hope you will join us. At the end of each show, we like to take some time to reflect on what we've talked about and think about something that we can take away or make actionable after the episode. And I am definitely inspired. I love the idea of Mother Coders. I would love to see it expand. I think everybody should donate to the cause. And um, I personally, they do Amazon Smile. And every time I buy from Amazon, a percentage goes to Mother Coders. So that's definitely the cause that I get behind when I'm doing that. And I encourage you all to do the same. Rain, do you have anything? Am I allowed to have two things? You are allowed to have two things. Okay. Three, three is a bridge too far. So just four is right out. Okay. Yes. Um, the first is that we spend a lot of time talking about Silicon Valley, the tech industry, uh, America, but the empowerment of women and the challenges are a global uh, problem. And I just wanted to talk about the decades of research, case studies, and work that's gone into, for instance, uh, exploring microfinance as a tool for the economic empowerment of women in the developing world, especially places like India since the mid-80s. We've been giving uh, small business loans to women to try to bring them and their communities out of poverty. There's a ton of research case studies. Um, it's interesting both in that it's been successful and that it hasn't, uh, often for uh, reasons that aren't because the women did it wrong. Uh, things like resentment from men and, and a variety of challenges. Uh, so that's the first one. And the second is there's an amazing Twitter account that uh, this is much more fun that I want to share with you. Uh, it's at man who has it all. And it's basically a gender reversal of all of the uh, sexist things that men say at or about women in the workplace. Uh, so they are instead said by women about men. And it is glorious. And uh, that's it for me, Coraline. I actually had a, a note to talk about something very similar in about encouraging women worldwide, not just in the U.S., I had the privilege of taking part in a program maybe five or six years ago now that was aimed at fostering entrepreneurship in women in Africa. And I think it's interesting that like we have a very male dominated culture in America. And this woman who ended up staying with us and we were supporting in this program, her name was Jovita. In her country, women were seen as the agents of social and economic change. And there was actually a lot more respect paid toward women. Expectations were very, very high, but women were rising to the occasion. And I think it's interesting that through the programs you were talking about, Rain, with like micropayments or microloans and things like that, 
we should be looking at this as a worldwide problem. And there are ways and there are organizations who are addressing it that way, too. But of course, we need to take care of things here as well, because we have we have so many problems as a culture here in America. Um, one of the other things that I'm taking away from this is thinking about, I think Tina mentioned um, role models and how many of the role models we have in terms of the idealized worker are unrealistic. So I want to think about how I can personally promote role models to better reflect where we want to be as a culture, not just where we currently are. And that's going to encourage me to find some new voices, maybe people that I don't currently follow on Twitter and amplify their voices and amplify things around their struggles and their achievements and their accomplishments. Tina, do you have any thoughts for us? I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being part of this community. I'm really happy that, you know, I've been slogging away at this for, let's see, my little one's almost four. So three and a half years, right? And I've really seen this movement grow and this community grow, this community of people who care about diversity, inclusion in tech and are actively doing something about it. So thank you so much for being a part of this and for including moms because we moms were not included in the beginning and now moms are, you know, in the conversation. So thank you so much for talking to me and being interested in what we're doing in Mother Coders and promoting us and Mandy, you for just being an example for what is possible, right? So just thank you. And then two, because I, at the end of the day, like really feel like I'm just trying to change culture, this invisible thing. I spend a lot of time thinking about like, how do we make moms cool? Right. Part of the problem is like moms aren't cool. I don't know why. Because I think I'm pretty cool. I mean, it's pretty cool. I mean, I don't know, Coraline, you probably think you're pretty cool too, right? I'm totally cool. Sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes I feel that way. (laughs) So I don't understand why we're perceived as not cool. So anyway... I want to help make us cool. And I think about like silly ways to do that and that we have to come up with some cultural meme or something to make us cool. And I've been playing around with this idea of making like hats and t-shirts and sweatshirts or swag, whatever, right? That say code like a mother. Yes. Love it. (laughs) Would you buy a t-shirt like a mother? (laughs) I would absolutely buy that (laughs) t-shirt. Okay. I'm going to work on that. I'm going to get a designer it right now because i think that would be pretty awesome right yes we are a representative sample of your target market and we agree so because i mean i i named this thing mother coders for a reason right i'm like uh everyone's gonna remember because it sounds like something else that rhymes with mother coders love it so we play around with that all mother loaders yeah i I don't get it (laughs) we have mother lovers (laughs) mother givers mother frienders so yeah, the sweatshirt would be like code like a mother. And I hope like that's something that people would be into and want to buy. Awesome. Yeah, just point me uh, somewhere where I can give you money. <laughs> Take my money. <laughs> well, it was a great conversation today. Tina, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm also really happy, Mandy, that you decided to join the panel today because I thought you had some great perspectives as a mom who is exactly in the situation that Tina's foundation is trying to serve better. So thank you both so much. And of course, Rain, you had some great questions. So thank you for being here as our token male guy. Um, (laughs) That wraps up episode 25. Thank you all for listening. And we will talk to you next week.